0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Mr. President, I'd also like to take a couple of minutes to discuss a bill I'll be introducing with Senators Coons, Graham, and White House. It's called the Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data Act, or the CLOUD Act. It's a tremendously important bill that will help solve the problems that have arisen in recent years with cross-border law enforcement requests. The rise of email and cloud computing has put our data privacy laws on a collision course with the privacy laws of other countries. Information in emails or in the cloud can be stored on servers virtually anywhere in the world. This means that when law enforcement seeks access to such information, the information may be located in another country. The Cloud Act was first introduced in the United States in 2018. It allows U.S. law enforcement to use a warrant or subpoena to compel U.S.-based technology companies to provide data stored on servers regardless of where the data is located. Canada and the U.S. recently announced plans to negotiate a Cloud Act agreement which would ease cross-border disclosures of data between the two countries. The negotiations are at a very early stage, but if a deal is reached, who will likely spark considerable interest given the implications for privacy, law enforcement, and civil liberties. David Fraser is a lawyer with McInnes Cooper in Halifax and one of Canada's leading privacy law experts. He regularly acts for clients on data disclosure matters and was one of the first to highlight the negotiations and its implications on his YouTube channel. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the CLOUD Act, how it might fit into Canada's privacy law framework, and how the Canadian government should approach the negotiations. David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to. I'm really glad
0: that that you've come, come on board. You know, you've been doing some really interesting YouTube videos focused on a whole range of privacy issues, and you recently had one that I think people really need to pay attention to. I certainly did, and that's why I wanted to bring you onto the podcast, because as people's attention is, is I suppose, unsurprisingly focused elsewhere, there's a a lot going on. Canada and the United States recently announced plans to negotiate what's what's called a cloud agreement that would facilitate cross-border law enforcement investigations. Can you get our conversation started by explaining the announcement and exactly what a cloud agreement with the U.S. might mean?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's not as though there's nothing else going on these days, eh? Uh, So at a a high level, what the Cloud Act does is a couple things. So first, on one hand, it clarifies that U.S. companies, that if they are subject to a U.S. search warrant, that search warrant can require that company to hand over data regardless of where it's located. And so this was in response to a case often referred to as Microsoft Ireland, um, which I'm sure many of your, your listeners would recall from a while ago, where U.S. law enforcement was looking for data from Microsoft that Microsoft had hosted on a server in Ireland and they resisted uh, and went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States ultimately became moot because the Cloud Act was passed that made it clear that US companies have to hand over information regardless of of where it is. But the thing that affects us in Canada mainly is it sets up a framework in the United States for the US government to enter into agreements with like-minded governments to fast track law enforcement requests for user or customer information. And so it takes down barriers on the US side of the border that have generally inhibited a number of different kinds of uh, foreign law enforcement requests. So at that high level, a Canada-US Cloud Act Agreement uh, would be a framework through which Canada would permit Canadian companies to comply with US court orders for data in certain cases. It would also permit US companies to comply with Canadian court orders. Because right now the power behind Canadian-US court orders actually ends at the border And there are also internal barriers that prevent U.S. and Canadian companies from voluntarily complying with orders from the other country.
0: Okay, so that that does sound significant. Let's just unpack that last point a bit more. So the current situation is one where court orders largely stop at the border with respect to these companies, and this could result in that changing pretty significantly, uh, both for Canadian companies and U.S. companies?
1: That's right. So... Very often we're familiar with kind of civil claims where civil discovery can cross the border without too many impediments. Uh, But policing power is a different category entirely, particularly when it comes to international law. So that power ends abruptly at the border. So a person who's subject to Canadian jurisdiction can clearly be ordered to do things by Canadian courts, but a person who's not within that court's jurisdiction can't be compelled to do anything. So a Canadian court order cannot order an American company in the US to, to do anything. We did have a case out of the British Columbia Court of Appeal called Brecknell, uh, where the Court of Appeal decided that a virtual presence in the jurisdiction is sufficient, uh, although I think that was wrongly decided. It was the result of the police going to a justice of the peace being refused, appealing that to a provincial court judge, appealing that to the Supreme Court of British Columbia, then appealing that in all these kind of ex parte appeals. Uh, And then within a very short time after that, this very exact same issue came up in front of a justice of the peace or a judge in Newfoundland who said, yeah, no, Brecknell was was wrongly decided. And so we kind of have split authority, although the consensus among international law practitioners uh, and people who focus on this sort of thing are, are pretty clear that, yeah, no, you can't, Canadian court orders when it comes to this sort of function end at the border and kind of vice versa. So if you have a Canadian investigation that's ongoing and they really need to order a US company to provide data or there's data that the US company can't provide, You'd have to go through the formal treaty process and ask the U.S. federal government to obtain a U.S. court order on their behalf. Uh, and on the U.S. side of the border, clearly U.S. companies could just refuse because Canadian criminal law does not apply there. But in practice, they, they tend to cooperate uh, more often than not.
0: That's interesting. Can you, can you tell us a bit about how they cooperate? So if these court orders do have that limited effect outside of the jurisdiction, what happens with these large internet companies, the Facebooks, Googles, and some of the other sorts of companies that are out there that clearly have large amounts of Canadian data and could find themselves subject to Canadian court orders, but I, I assume make the case that they are US-based and that's not subject to that court order?
1: That's right. So it's a little bit of a, a tricky position, because they don't wanna hand over information without a warrant, <laughs> and so they, so they rely on the fact that a, a foreign magistrate or judge or justice of the peace has said, no, we have a compelling reason to have it, but also they're not going to submit to the jurisdiction. And so it, more often than not, it's framed in terms of voluntary cooperation. You show us an order and we're gonna voluntarily provide the information that we can, as long as it doesn't risk them violating their own domestic laws. So most of the big internet companies have policy documents on their websites that are publicly available that explain their practices. Uh, many of them have transparency reports that will also let you know that thousands of Canadian requests are sent to U.S. companies every year and they're responded to. But the big issue for Canadian law enforcement, uh, so I referred to they'll voluntarily cooperate as long as they don't risk violating their own domestic law. The issue is something called the Stored Communications Act, which is a U.S. federal law. And it was a uh, Part of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act and this law essentially says that law enforcement in the U.S. Or law enforcement anywhere actually cannot get access to the contents of communications held by U.S. service providers except with a qualifying U.S. federal or state warrant. Uh, so the U.S. provider can't provide Canadian police with the contents of communications under a Canadian production order. So if the police know that suspect A emailed suspect B using a U.S. based email provider, that provider can't give up those emails to the Canadian police without violating the Stored Communications Act. So in order to do that, because it can only be provided with a qualifying US federal or state warrant, they, the Canadian law enforcement goes to the Canadian government who knocks on the door of the US government, asking them to get a US warrant on, on their behalf. Now, I was involved in a case a few years ago in which an Ontario police department got a court order requiring a US company to provide the contents of communications. And on the US side of the border, that would have meant that the US company would risk violating the Stored Communications Act. Uh, So in that case, we had to seek judicial review of the production order. And it ultimately became moot because the police then went through the mutual legal assistance treaty process, got the communications, but at the end of the day, uh, so it was rendered moot, but it would have been an interesting decision had it gone to a hearing. Uh, But it's a bit of a two way street. So Canadian cops are concerned about the Stored Communications Act, which is referred to as a blocking statute. Uh, But we also have a whole bunch of those. So, for example, our federal privacy law says that a company can only hand over data under a warrant, court order, subpoena, or where required by law. And that presumably means where required by Canadian law. So a Canadian company subject to PIPEDA or PIPEDA uh, wouldn't be able to hand over data in resp- any data, whether it's content of communications or basic subscriber information in response to U.S. order without risking violating PIPEDA. So that would have to be amended to give effect to this mutual uh, arrangement under the Cloud Act. And so we have 14 different public sector privacy laws in Canada that may need similar amendments. We have four of them, uh, private sector, that would need uh, similar amendments. And we also have in in some of our statutes kind of quirks related to foreign demands for disclosure. Uh, So for example, in Nova Scotia, if you're subject to the Freedom of Information Protection Privacy Act and the Personal Information International Disclosure Protection Act, so public sector statutes, it's an offense to disclose information in response to a foreign demand for disclosure. And obviously that would have to change if they wanted to make sure that the Cloud Act would apply uh, to those entities, which is an open question whether or not uh, public sector entities would be required to comply with this, or for if the information is held by a government agency, whether it would continue to have to go through uh, the MLAT.
0: Okay, so it gets pretty complicated in Canada if we if if we end up with an agreement where we're going to try to remove some of these impediments or so-called blocking statutes. I guess I'm trying to to visualize a little bit, you know, what all this looks like. And it sounds as if, you know, there, there may be initial attempts to request the information under some circumstances, let's say, in the, particularly for the large data companies, the internet companies, they may disclose in the event that they believe they are unable to disclose or unable to cooperate. You head to the this MLAT process. Can you describe that process a little bit further? How long does it take? It, it's you've suggested that it's the government kind of steps in and makes that request.
1: That's right. So so MLATs are longstanding. So Canada is a party to mutual legal assistance treaties in Criminal Matters Act with a large number of, of countries, uh, including the United States. And essentially what these are is it's a bilateral agreement in which two countries say, yeah, we will help you facilitate mutual access to evidence in the other's country, but with significant oversight. Now, just having a treaty usually signals that they have a good relationship and a mutual interest in investigating crime. Uh, And essentially it says, you send us the request and we'll see if we're willing to help you. So the process is (laughs) multi-step. So Canadian police if they're looking for information that's in the United States, they go to the Canadian Department of Justice with a request. And the Canadian Department of Justice then decides, they take a close look at it hopefully, and decide whether or not to pass it along. Uh, They may consider whether they're gonna get cooperation. It's worth noting that a Canadian judge is not at all involved in this step of the process. And so the Canadian DOJ would then pass it along to the other country's central authority asking for their help. And the other country's central authority, not surprisingly, will take a close look at it and see if it meets their internal standards. So for example, in the United States, does this on its face have a showing of probable cause uh, that could be the basis for seeking a warrant? Uh, They also scrutinize it to make sure it's not too broad, make sure it's not a fishing expedition. And they also look at whether it implicates their own domestic interests. And so if the other country's central authority is okay with it, then they go before a judge in their country And they get a production order or a search warrant. Um, So a domestic order that that is valid in that country. They get the data under that order or warrant. They review the data to make sure it complies and it's not overbroad. Then they pass it along to the Canadian Central Authority, who then send it to the Canadian police. And so a whole bunch of hops and a whole bunch of scrutiny. Um, And it's been said for quite some time by the Canadian police that this is too slow and cumbersome. Um, But we've seen in the last number of years and, and, you know, neither government is particularly forthcoming with information and stats about all of this, uh, which is a bit unfortunate, Uh, but it has become clear that a lot of resources have been put into it on both sides of the border. So, for example, in the US, there's a special prosecutor or a a special Department of Justice uh, group that's in Silicon Valley, specifically in order to deal with uh, these requests that relate to Internet companies. Um, And most of these requests are dealt with uh, within two months Uh, and emergency requests get prompt attention, and so it certainly involves more scrutiny and paperwork, uh, but some may say that's a feature and not a bug. And so what the cloud act does is it becomes a bit of a passing lane for the MLAT, so it starts from a similar premise and a mutual understanding that neither country can investigate in the other's territory without permission. Uh, but under, the, under a Cloud Act agreement, it's essentially saying, yeah, we'll give blanket permission for some cases in some circumstances because we can trust you not to abuse this. And so Canada has a charter and the U.S. has the Bill of Rights. The thresholds for getting warrants on both sides of the border are similar, require approval from a judge, justice of the peace or a magistrate. Both have similar protections for freedom of expression, kind of similar. Uh, both espouse equal protection under the law, etc. And so essentially this is the US government saying, well, since we know you and we trust you, we'll forego the close scrutiny at the Department of Justice level and we'll trust your judges to do that uh, as long as it's mutual. And we'll make sure that a company that receives one of these orders can challenge it if they want to. They're not actually subject to the order itself. Like it doesn't have, it doesn't become a, a US order in the United States when it issues from a Canadian court, but it says the US provider can comply with it. Uh, but they do have a mechanism to challenge it if there's if there's a basis for doing so.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. That, what does the U.S. have in place right now? So we're starting this with you know between Canada and the United States. Do they have similar agreements with other countries? Do, what do what do they look like? And I suppose to to follow on with your last point, is there much of a history of those internet companies challenging some of the orders that come come up now through this Cloud Act process for places where it might already be in place?
1: Well, so this is a this is a long process. So the the announcement that took place uh, about the Canada US negotiations is kind of just the starting point. Although, I wouldn't be surprised if there had actually been a lot of preliminary discussions going on uh, for some time before. But since the Cloud Act was passed in twenty eighteen, we only have two Cloud Act agreements between the United States and, and other countries. Uh, we have one with the United Kingdom and another one with with Australia. And to kind of add to the time that it takes, and you know time and scrutiny are, are good things in circumstances like this because you're you're kind of lowering your shields in a sense and you want to make sure that you're comfortable doing that. Um, what has to happen is the agreement is negotiated and then the US um, uh, Department of Justice, the Attorney General lays in front of the US Congress for at least six months kind of a package of material saying we are satisfied that this country, uh, has a, a good legal system, respects the rule of law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a long uh, buildup to ultimately it coming into effect. And also during that time, it gives the, the other country uh, the time to uh, lower their blocking statutes in order to make this truly reciprocal. And so we've, we've seen the US, uh, United Kingdom and the US-Australia agreements. And I think they provide a good model for what we can likely expect in a, in a Canada-US agreement. But I wouldn't think it would necessarily be Identical. Uh, so one thing to note, it doesn't replace the MLAT, which will always be available for requests that don't fit within the agreements framework and the agreement is I expect to be relatively well tailored for certain kinds of cases in certain circumstances and anything else will still continue to go through go through the MLAT. Uh, so the agreement would generally only apply to investigations of serious crimes. So in the case of the UK agreement, that's a, those are offences with a three-year maximum and above. So if, if it's an offence that has a two-year maximum term of imprisonment, no, nope, it's not serious enough to, to go through this process. If you want to investigate it, go through, go through the MLAT. I think it'll be interesting to see how a Canada-US agreement applies to things outside the criminal code Uh, like Castle. So our anti-spam law has notices to produce which don't have judicial oversight or just signed off by somebody at the CRTC uh, and can purport to require the production of significant uh, amounts of information and significantly sensitive information. And we also have in in Canada a whole bunch of administrative bodies that have subpoena power uh, that can compel the production of, of records. And it will be interesting to see whether or not those are addressed in a cloud act agreement or those are still going to have to go through the MLAT and and many of them aren't even uh, the MLAT isn't even available because they're not actual criminal investigations they're regulatory Uh, so it might be a matter of um, dealing with uh, still kind of letters rogatory in some circumstances Um, and so but the agreements also still have some government involvement or at least the Uh, the the current ones with the UK and Australia do so that data other than basic subscriber information is routed through the requesting government so that there's still some insight into what's going through the pipe. Uh, It's not scrutinized by the other government but if so for example if if Canadian law enforcement is looking for uh, information uh, other than basic subscriber information that would still go through the Canadian Department of Justice uh, to at least have some visibility into I guess. But so implementing this is a slow process, and and I haven't seen any reported decisions related to either the UK or Australia yet, Uh, but I expect there will be some before uh, before too long. Uh, But also in in a bunch of cases, uh, when a a company goes to court to resist something like this, it's not necessarily kind of widely reported on, Um, and so one may have to do some digging in order to try to find it. Okay,
0: so there there may be stuff happening, but it's not necessarily public, at least not yet. Now, you've started us down this road a little bit in terms of identifying some of the Canadian statutes that would be affected and even the, the prospect of sort of very broad uh, applicability, or or not, depending on just how far this extends beyond just the kind of core serious crime side. But uh, you know, I think Canadians will be left to wonder about how this fits within sort of that broader framework and some of the privacy concerns it might raise. You know, for example, I spoke with Christopher Parsons about lawful access on this podcast just a couple of months ago. We've had cross border. Data transfer issues that have raised concerns now, almost dating back nearly 20 years in British Columbia. You know, what are some of your thoughts about, you know, how this is going to either shape Canadian privacy law or have an effect or impact what our laws look like?
1: Uh, I will be interested to see how the Canadian privacy community uh, reacts to this, uh, because yeah, as you said, going back 20 years to the uh, the British Columbia uh, health processing, outsourcing, and the USA Patriot Act scare, um, that got a lot of attention and it got a lot, of, a lot of traction resulting in legislative changes in British Columbia and then in, in Nova Scotia to prevent personal information from being transferred outside of Canada uh, or stored outside of Canada or access from outside of Canada uh, for public bodies in those two, those two provinces. And so one of the commitments in, in the agreement is that Canada is gonna have to make sure that its domestic law permits the disclosures to US authorities as contemplated under the agreement, which will mean that our private sector privacy laws are gonna have to be changed to specifically permit these disclosures in response to US warrants, which I think is currently prohibited. And so we'll need to, so uh, whether or not British Columbia and Alberta are gonna be keen to change their statutes uh, for uh, a Canadian kind of federal purpose, I'm not sure. Uh, I would expect they do because policing is, administered provincially in our provinces Uh, and so British Columbia police are having the same issues getting access to data in the U.S. and and so I think there is a there within governments at least there will be a public policy imperative to to make this happen. Um, There's also one needs to turn our minds to and and the, the the devil will be in the details and the proof will be in the agreement is what providers or what companies or entities are actually subject to receiving and responding to these sorts of orders so in the uk agreement covered providers are limited to private companies uh, but in our well i think probably worldwide private companies often provide services to governments and so in nova scotia i think i referred to earlier uh, it's an offense for a service provider to a government agency to provide data in response to a foreign demand for disclosure and so it'll be interesting to see how covered provider is in canadian in the canadian agreement And whether this prohibition in nova scotia will have to go and so i I think at the end of the day or or through this process removing these barriers will likely be contentious in light of the historic privacy scare regarding the usa patriot act Uh, and i'm also concerned that while the government is changing the criminal code to provide for these sorts of cross-border orders so for example in the uk they amended their criminal law uh, to create an international production order and I think Canada will have to do the same because Canadian criminal law does not have any effect outside of Canada. And it can't, it can purport to if, if Parliament specifically puts it in there. But so they're gonna to have to implement a new form of production order. And I think that there will probably be a temptation to use that as an opportunity to implement the lawful access agenda that the Canadian police and folks in public safety, Canada have been lobbying for for years. And so in particular, they've been looking for warrantless access to basic subscriber information and telecommunications metadata without a warrant. And I'm afraid that these things might go into some sort of omnibus bill related to modernizing law enforcement techniques, the sort of uh, lingo or terminology we've, we've seen before. And I would expect if they were to attempt to do that, it would probably be met with the same outrage that we saw the last few times it was attempted. Uh, which derailed it in each instance. And so if the government was smart and actually committed to a Cloud Act agreement, I don't think they would, uh, I think they'd be well advised to not even try putting in lawful access uh, into something like this because it could jeopardize the cloud arrangement itself.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, it, you know, certainly the the history and actually on that podcast with uh, Christopher Parsons, who did go, walk through a lot of that history, it, it's long been the case that, the proponents of, of lawful access approach have looked for opportunities to try to insert it at times. into yeah. different pieces of legislation. And I think you've identified another possibility down the road. You know, why don't we conclude conclude with this? I have to say that one of the things that makes this really interesting, as you've described, is that when I when I look at Canada's negotiations on various agreements, particularly in the trade space, Canada tends to start from the position that, you know, they just want an agreement that reflects current laws and they can be moved off a little bit here or there. We may see fairly soon term a copyright term extension, for example, which was something Canada had to give on in the USMCA. But by and large, the position is we don't want to we don't want to have to make many changes. We kind of want to find consensus based on our existing laws. You've described something that would result in really significant amounts of changes, both federally and at the provincial level. So we're talking about a, a pretty significant overhaul in many respects of a lot of statutes to make this thing work. Can, can you describe, you know, what kind of cautions or guardrails do you think we need as Canada moves forward uh, with this process?
1: Well, Michael, I, I think I'm, I'm broadly hopeful that this can be done with tweaks rather than overhauls and, and properly tailored ones, but I think we need to be on the lookout for that. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think I'm broadly in favor of a cloud act agreement because it makes sense that Canadian cops should be able to go to a Canadian judge applying the Canadian charter to get an order to obtain Canadian data when they're investigating a Canadian crime, even if the data is in the U S and, and the, the location of data is often just kind of incidental and is not Uh, That just kind of reflects the modern reality of of software as a service and cloud service providers. And I think it it identically makes sense that American cops should be able to go to an American judge to get an American warrant under a probable cause showing in order to obtain American data to investigate American crime, even if the data is in Canada. And so if the agreement is tailored to those sorts of circumstances, it's less problematic uh, for me. Um, We'll want to closely scrutinize the definitions that show up in the agreement of what is covered data, uh, what are covered offenses, who are covered persons and entities, to make sure that U.S. investigations of Canadians and vice versa, that they continue to go through the MLAT uh, so that they will always be subject to case-by-case scrutiny, to make sure that that the the boxes are checked on both sides of the the borders. I think we'll also want to look for, will this apply to real-time interception? Um, And if so, will it have the same protections that we currently have for wiretaps in Canada, which is a much higher standard of showing to the judge in order to get to get a wiretap order? Um, I wouldn't want to see any sort of reference to decryption in something like this, because obviously the in the same way that lawful access is something the government has been or law enforcement agencies have been lobbying for the whole kind of going dark phenomenon uh, as well. And that's covered off in their protections for encryption, in fact, in, in the uh, UK agreement. Uh, finally, I'd wanna see that there's nothing in the agreement or the resulting law amendments that limits transparency. Uh, we should understand once this is implemented, how many of these orders are issued? How many accounts are affected? And also what is the nature of the crime that's being investigated? So we should know this uh, for orders in, in both directions. And certainly the large service providers, the Googles, the Twitters, the Metas, et cetera, uh, do have transparency reports. And they're they're willing to disclose this information in order to be kind of transparent about what they're receiving, what they're seeing, and what they're and how they're responding to it. I really hope that there's nothing in the agreement that would limit their ability to do that. And I, I, I would hope, but I don't expect that there could be something on the Canadian side of things requiring. Uh, courts to report or law enforcement agencies to report how many of these are issued uh, and related to how many accounts, and also what's the what's the nature of the of the crime, um, because in in some ways the the express lane in, in, in the Mlat uh, or express lane around the Mlat in a Cloud Act agreement kind of removes some of these or a lot of these from the case by case scrutiny, and so we should make sure that there is an ability for at least big picture supervision and understanding about what in fact is is going on and so it will be interesting to see how this plays out in the the next little while it will be interesting to see what sort of consultations the the government of canada actually does probably informally uh, while it's negotiating this uh, this agreement um, and uh, whether or not there will be a a meaningful opportunity for for public input uh, into this process certainly once uh, once a bill is laid in front of Parliament after a Cloud Act agreement is negotiated, the Parliamentary Committee will have to scrutinize it, and, and there will hopefully be an opportunity for, for discussion. Uh, but I would hope that that, that process uh, begins in a meaningful way before that milepost.
0: Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with that sentiment. We've seen too many instances where agreements are negotiated and it it feels more like a rubber stamp process because there's just such limited flexibility in terms of making change once you've actually reached that agreement the time to to consult and address potential concerns in many ways is before you've finalized the agreement not after it's done and now you're just seeking that final approval it 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 definitely sounds like that there's a lot to be thinking about and i'm really grateful that you've put this on the public's radar screen and hopefully there'll be opportunities for the public and most certainly yourself to, to speak out on it as, as we move down this process. Uh, so, David, thank you so much for, for doing for that work and for joining me on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. It's, it's been a pleasure.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.